You're about to hear my conversation with our chief economist, Todd Martina. We talk all about the Bank of Japan and their recent decision to unanchor their 10-year bond. We also talk about real return bonds in Canada and what implications that may have for investors. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with Todd Matina, who's our chief economist. Todd, welcome back. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Uh, I thought that we'd uh, start today's conversation by talking about the Bank of Japan. Uh, recent actions out of the Bank of Japan uh, were unanticipated by markets, uh, caused a bit of a splash. Todd, why don't you walk us through uh, what the most recent uh, actions of the Bank of Japan are and what some of the implications may be? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, you know, it's funny, it's just earlier in December in our monthly commentary, we we did a piece on the Bank of Japan and its yield curve control policy. So turns out that macro commentary was timely with the uh, the Bank of Japan coming out December 19th with, like as you're saying, a very surprising decision. Uh, caught almost everyone off guard. The uh, Bank, of J- Bank of Japan's basically since 2016 controlled its yield curve. So capped uh, the range that the 10-year government bond yield can range. And uh, you know before the announcement, it, it was capped at 25 basis points, so a quarter right. percentage point. Uh, and in the surprise announcement, they widened the band to 50 basis points, so a half percentage point, uh, which may not sound like a material move in today, today's world of very high interest rates, but this was unexpected and has m- uh, enormous potential implications for Japan and even global financial markets uh, because – uh, depending on on the reasoning for why they've made this move, it could be the first in a series of steps towards normalization in Japan of, of their interest rates, which mm. would affect a lot of borrowers who have borrowed heavily in yen. Uh, so including the Japanese government themselves, uh, the government debt in Japan is about, well, it's over 260% of GDP, the highest in um, advanced economies. So this is uh, potentially a, a regime shift um, and a move towards normalization uh, with potentially big implications for all these um, heavily leveraged uh, borrowers in yen, including those who have been active users of the sort of famous yen funded carry trade in currency markets. Uh, well, maybe let's uh, break that down a little bit further to try to better understand the, the implications there. Um, sure. So the, the unanchoring or the, uh, uh, increase to 50 basis points. Uh, in your view, the it sounds like uh, in and of itself is a, a large move, but it could be this um, the start of something that's more normalized. Uh, if they do get to that more normalized uh, segment, uh, you reference the the uh, a, a massive amount of debt uh, that the government has. What implications would that have on the government? So for the government, um, which is carrying this very large debt, uh, obviously debt service is the key issue. So if if 
Japan moves from this long-term regime it's been kind of stuck in for decades of very, very low rates of inflation, very, very low rates of interest rate. Suddenly, these high debt burdens uh, become much potentially more costly to service, particularly if, with its declining population growth rates. It has a slowing rate of economic growth. And if rates do start to normalize towards more global interest rate levels, which will be a slow and gradual process, but if that happens, then that's going to uh, create debt servicing, not problems, but definitely it's going to put pressure on public finances. And suddenly, where there was an era of basically free money to finance large budget deficits, uh, they're going to have to start making harder choices, uh, which they've been able to uh, resist. You know, they've been able to kick the can down the road on you know whether they raise taxes or issue bonds. They've been able to issue bonds because it was essentially free money. So that, that will change the debt service profile going ahead. And I think a really you, you kind of touched on it too, Matt. And I, I think a really interesting discussion is you know is this one and done? Are they just widening the the right. band to fifty basis points and they're done? And th- this was the the. It was part of the announcement. This was the statement that the Bank of Japan's governor was making. That's, you know, the liquidity in the uh, Japanese government bond market is so poor. Um, you know, the, the Bank of Japan owns almost 50% of the total outstanding stock of government T-bills and, and bonds, which is un, uh, incredible. And uh, and some days, uh, there isn't even any trade in, in these securities. So it's just a completely backwards uh, situation in their in their government debt market compared to U.S. Treasuries and German boons and and even Canadian government bonds, where there's you know trillions of dollars being traded uh, in these securities. So it's it's uh, it's really an important move. Most people don't believe that this is a one and done move, and they're doubting the Bank of Japan that this is. You know, it's simply a liquidity operation during an illiquid period. They see this as the gap between Japanese rates and global interest rates widen, and they've obviously widened dramatically this year, uh, as global rates have have risen so much with the rise in global inflation. Now, as that gap widens, it's putting more and more pressure on the Bank of Japan to defend this very unusually low interest rate. And that's just as they're purchasing bonds in Japan to keep the rates low, they're inflating their balance sheet. And uh, that's flooding Japan with liquidity. This is uh, this has been not a problem as long as inflation in Japan stayed low and it's been below the 2% target for, for decades. Right. But this year, it's in the latest report, core inflation was 3.6%. So well above target, seventh month in a row of being above target. Uh, so now the Bank of Japan has a trickier balancing act to make. And what are the implications if they maintain or if this is a one and done and they stick with 50 basis points? Um, you know, 3.6% inflation seems rather enviable, actually, um, when yeah. you look at the rest of the world. Uh, and considering the components of inflation, it's it's still rather low. Where, where energy is gone, where food is gone, all that's going to impact their economy as well. So what, what are the implications there? Yeah, it's important. Uh, it's an important point. So, if you look at what economists are expecting for Japan's inflation next year, so thinking a year ahead, it's expected to decline quite rapidly uh, from 3.6, which would be fantastic by our standards. But sure. <laughs> uh, you know, with goods prices falling very rapidly, 
you know, inflation in Japan is expected to fall more in the one and a quarter to one and a half percent range next year. So again, falling below their two percent target. So again, they're 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 walking this really difficult balancing act of trying to normalize their interest rate structure while not taking their foot off the gas pedal too much because they are still trying to achieve 2% stable, sustainable inflation rate. So I think, you know, what was important is that when they did widen the band to 50 basis points, they also increased quantitative easing in -hmm. conjunction with that to try to give this signal that, oh, they're still supporting uh, the economy, they still want to keep monetary conditions loose to support uh, their inflation target. I think the the real question will be, um, you know, how will this be an orderly process of, of perhaps continuously increasing the um, the yield curve control gap from 50 basis points to something higher over the next coming years to take that pressure off the Bank of Japan from buying endless amounts of government paper and other assets, which then inflates their balance sheet and and floods the system with liquidity. I think if this is, and in my mind, this is what we're actually seeing, is that the Bank of Japan is saying this is going to be an orderly process. They want right. to steadily raise rates, normalize, close the gap with the rest of the world. And it's got to be orderly because, you know, they just recently had a great lesson from the UK of what right. can happen when government risk-free interest rates suddenly surge very abruptly. We saw that after the mini-budget crisis and all the financial distress that caused, um, sometimes in areas you don't always suspect. We saw the UK pension plans, which are highly leveraged, um, suddenly being unable to meet their collateral requirements when the interest rates skyrocketed. And the Bank of England had to come in and provide emergency liquidity so that they could raise cash collateral to settle their derivatives. Well. I'm sure the Bank of Japan paid careful attention to that episode and is saying, we don't want that to happen here. The UK is a big economy, but Japan is, you know, by some measures, it's the third, third largest economy in the world and, and one of the most indebted countries in the world. So there's plenty of pockets of, of leverage around. And they, I think, recognize that there's financial stability risks if they don't ensure a very orderly uh, normalization or increase in their interest rates. Great. Um, I guess maybe a, a couple more questions on, on this specifically. What does it mean for the yen uh, in general? Uh, what, do you, what is the outlook? Does it change the future uh, projection of the yen? Yeah, it's a very important point. So we saw, for example, uh, the yen was flirting with its weakest point of uh, 150 to the US dollar. Uh, you know, levels that people thought were, were just inc- unthinkable uh, a couple of years ago. But again, as that interest rate gap between Japan and the rest of the world widened, that put right. a lot of downward pressure on the yen. Uh, so I think the Bank of Japan also chose its moment carefully to raise interest rates. It didn't want to look like it was panicking when the yen was uh, under a lot of downward pressure when foreign investors and domestic residents in Japan as well were all selling. It waited until there was there had been a recovery in the yen and a little bit of pressure coming off the Bank of Japan to defend that cap of now they they have a bit quieter market conditions and now they've decided to pull the trigger with this wider band. 
Not surprisingly, though, by widening the band and taking pressure off themselves to flood the system with, with more liquidity to defend the, the cap in the, in the yield, what they've done effectively is tighten liquidity conditions relative to what it was before. Right. And that's, that's allowed the yen to strengthen. And we've seen a very dramatic strengthening in the yen. And speculation is that if this is more than one and done, if this is going to be an orderly process of raising rates, um, then we would expect to see this yen trend perhaps continuing going into 2023 uh, if the Bank of Japan continues that move. Um, interesting, you know, the Bank of Japan is also facing a leadership change in April in 2023. Right. And a lot yeah. of strategists, a lot of economists and investors thought that we wouldn't see these kinds of major policy changes until after the leadership change. Uh, again, taking everyone by surprise that it happened in December uh, during the sort of the, the, the final months of, of Governor Karuda's period. I think it's it's relevant because he's really maybe set the tone for what the policy regime will be with the new leadership going forward. Kind of his legacy will be uh, shifting the policy stance and the direction going forward. And that leadership change in April, would you expect that then now to have to take that clear direction from the current central bank uh, governor and extend that? Or is there a possibility of a, a change in, in regime with that change of central banker? Yeah, it's still there's still a lot of uncertainty around that. The I think the consensus view before th this December surprise was that we'd have a new governor who would then start to widen the band and gradually normalize interest rates in Japan. That's happened sooner. And we're getting mixed messages out of the Bank of Japan. Like the, the official line from the Bank of Japan right now is that this was just a temp, a one-off operation because liquidity conditions in the Japanese government bond market were so poor. But no one really believes that. So right. now thinking about the leadership change, it seems more likely that they'll find a governor who will, you know, maybe formally take that policy into something that's more of a, a transition. Uh, and perhaps, we, I mean, it remains to be seen, This uh, the guidance coming out of the Bank of Japan was certainly not warning us that this is, was going to happen in December, so it's hard to know what they're thinking. But I think uh, it stands to reason that this is the first step and that the new, the new leadership will continue that. Great. Well, maybe taking a completely different topic on, uh, let's switch uh, over to Canada and the recent decision by the, the government of Canada to stop issuing real return bonds. Um, I've heard this in sort of uh, call it like the subreddit uh, finance uh, talk uh, that this is a, a big deal. Love your perspective on, I guess, the motivation behind uh, stopping to issue those real return bonds and, and what it, the implications may be. Yeah, this was another big surprise coming out of Canada this time that the government wanted to stop issuing real return bonds, which are inflation-adjusted bonds uh, that give investors um, sensitivity to inflation surprises. So if inflation was higher than expected, you would get uh, an adjustment in the principle of your, of your bond, uh, so much like the tips market in the U.S. So the surprise is that Canada will stop issuing these types of bonds. And what's so surprising, and I think what's been frankly upsetting to a lot of particularly institutional investors is how important these instruments are uh, for trying to uh, increase inflation sensitivity on the asset side of your balance sheet. For a lot of uh, institutions, whether that be uh, pension plan managers like Ontario Teachers, CPP Investment Board, Hoop, and others, 
uh, or even insurance companies that have pre, uh, benefits that are linked to inflation, this is a primary way to try to uh, get more inflation sensitivity in the portfolio to match the inflation sensitivity on your on your liability side on those benefit payments. Uh, so this is really taking a tool away from uh, the institutional investor and quite frankly for in individual investors as well who wanted to add inflation sensitivity in their portfolios. So the reasoning appears to be the the sort of the official justification for this appears to be that you know weak demand it's a relatively illiquid instrument in when it trades in the market but a lot of people have pushed back on this line and it's it's fairly in, in it's hard to defend this line of argument because i think effectively what's happening is it's it's not a lot of supply of this bond that's made of basically the government's not issuing a lot of these real return bonds. So when they do have new issuances, they're oversubscribed. Uh, institutional investors hoover them up, uh, keep them, hold them, sort of long-term buy and hold investors to maintain that inflation sensitivity. They're not trading them uh, in the marketplace. Or it's a buy and hold. So right. it's not that they have weak demand. It's quite the opposite. They're in very high demand and uh, people aren't trading them because there's not enough supply. So I think the real question is what is what's driving this decision by the government to stop issuing them when they when they appear to be in very strong demand and I think the reason is look uh, we have a higher inflation regime certainly in 2022 into 2023. So one possible reason is the government is making a, a view that inflation is high in 2023 and they don't want to be providing what will be a higher cost instrument for them to, to fund themselves because now they're going to pay out higher inflation. But that would be a very odd thing from a policymaker's perspective to be communicating to the market and certainly sure. would run cross purposes to what the Bank of Canada is trying to do. So right. uh, in terms of messaging. Um, so another possible possible argument is just it, uh, you know, it's a more expensive way to raise money for the government, even though it provides this huge public service to pension plans and investors, and that the government just doesn't want to pay that cost. So it's part of their debt management strategy. Um, but it's a bit of a puzzle right now. And I, I would say, uh, from the point of view of the investment community and, and institutional investors as well, this is definitely, a, uh, it's definitely a um, uh, a challenging decision for them because now they're going to have to try to find new ways to get inflation sensitivity in the portfolio. Right. So it sounds like institutional investors uh, sort of utilize these bonds to sort of immunize their liabilities that are linked to inflation. Uh, is there another way that they can easily sort of do that by using another instrument or is it, uh, is that there in the challenge? Yeah, I, I would say there's there's different ways to do it. There's, for example, inflation swaps, which are derivative contracts that they can undertake with a with a dealer, a counterparty. Um, but these are sometimes they are even more illiquid uh, right. than the bond than the bonds. They require cash collateral and settlement, which is a different operational setup than owning a physical bond issued by the government. Um, I would say we may see as a result of this decision a switch. You know, sort of. To, to these kinds of derivatives that provide inflation sensitivity. But now it's also hard for those who are on the other side. If the pension plans and investors want inflation sensitivity, someone's got to be on the other side of that trade and willing to basically take 
the inflation risk. Right. Um, if it's not the government through an inflation-linked bond, then you know there's uh, we've got to find um, somebody who's a natural seller of that risk. So it'll be it'll stand. It's unclear uh, if that swap market will be the way that things go. There's alternative ways to do it. You can find inflation sensitivity through private assets, you know, right. real estate exposure, infrastructure exposure. Uh, that can provide some inflation sensitivity. You know, if the revenues that are accruing to a real estate, you know, sometimes rents can be adjusted for inflation or infrastructure has services that are either by regulation or just by other means uh, are indexed to inflation. So that provides inflation sensitivity through holding a private asset. So you might see some in more interest in that in Canada. Um, commodities are another way to try to get sensitivity to a surprise inflation in energy or commodity prices so there's different tools that they can use but i think uh, you know they all have their pros and cons but they definitely lost one of the most important ways with the real return bond well we'll uh, we'll continue to monitor it and see if uh, if that decision changes in the future uh potentially uh but todd uh, i really appreciate you spending time with us thanks so much for the context on uh, both the bank of japan and real return bonds no, thanks so much. Always, always a pleasure. Always great speaking with you. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.